You're listening to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Deal by Deal invites you to conversations with experienced independent sponsors and other private equity professionals. Join McGuire Woods partners Greg Hover, Jeff Brooker, and Rebecca Brophy as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hey everyone, this is Greg Hover. Welcome to episode two of Deal by Deal, an independent sponsor podcast by McGuire Woods. We're really excited about this month's episode. We've got the team from Columbia River Partners here, an independent sponsor, and they're going to be speaking with my partner, Richard Grant, and myself. It's a really interesting interview. And after that, we've got my partner, Brian Coughlin, out of our San Francisco office, and I are going to be joined by Brad Harrop at Capstone Headwaters, an investment bank that's very active in the M&A space and debt finance space. And so we're, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the debt finance markets there. Before we jump in, a few quick housekeeping notes. The first of which is that you may have noticed there's a new name for this podcast, Deal by Deal, as opposed to Carried Interest. You're not taking crazy pills if you're a little confused by the new name. It turns out there was a conflict with another podcast on iTunes. So we've changed the name Deal by Deal. We really like the way it describes the economic model of independent sponsors and the general philosophy and excitement of, of going out and doing M&A and raising funds on a deal-by-deal basis. The other housekeeping note, which is more substantive and more exciting, is we are rolling out our annual independent sponsor conference this year. It is back. We've had it for several years in Dallas, and it'll be in Dallas again this October. We took a break during 2020 due to COVID, and like anything during the COVID era, the tentative plan is that it will be in October, but there may be some hiccups along the way. In any event, it's a fantastic conference. The last one we had in 2019, we had 800 guests. The beauty of this conference is that only independent sponsors and capital providers who invest with independent sponsors are invited to this conference. And Anyways, we had 800 guests. We hope to have more this year. At the 2019 conference, we focused, as we always do, on on making connections with people in our network. So the first day is devoted entirely to speed networking. And and in 2019, we made over 4,000 connections were made at that conference. So it's a really great event. We've received a lot of, of really positive feedback over the years. So look for information on that. So with that, We'll dive into this month's episode. Thanks. We're excited to welcome our independent sponsor guest, Columbia River Partners team. To join the discussion is my partner in our Los Angeles office, Richard Grant. Richard, you want to take it away? Thanks, Greg. Excited to be here. This is great. We have Puneet Goel and Nathan Chandrasekharan from Columbia River Partners, and great to have you guys. And I wanna jump in real quickly. As Greg said, I'm in our Los Angeles office. I'm a partner in our private equity mergers and acquisitions group, and I do a ton of independent sponsor work and love that part of my practice, particularly because I get to work with guys like you and a lot of fun and fun deals. But Enough about myself. Let's talk about you guys. I'm going to maybe skip some of the pleasantries and that good stuff and instead just jump right in. And then as we jump in, we'll learn about the two of you and Columbia River Partners. You both are seasoned investors, Puneet. You've got a deep background in venture. And Nathan, you've got a similar background in PE, but both of you are relatively new to the independent sponsor world. And yet, as new as you are to this platform of investing, you've already successfully closed on a few really interesting and intriguing deals. So would love to hear you talk about how'd you get there so fast? Hey, Richard, this is Nathan. Thanks for having us. It's great. Honestly, my background has been in private equity, so I you know, haven't done that for over, over 10 years. 
was involved with at a much larger firm, and one of the lifeblood was just finding ways to source opportunities. At the traditional private equity firm, you know, the general sourcing model is you call a lot of the middle market investment banks, and that's something I didn't want to do when I left the firm. And working with Panit, and he'll give you his background, what we thought is, hey, let's go find things where people are not typically looking for. And one of the first investments that we did, Chasetech Avionics, that was actually a carve-out of another company that was in distress. And the way we found that business was, you know, obviously just through a lot of hustling and networking, talking to lots of lawyers, accountants, private wealth people. And I came across this company and I met the CFO. The management team there was looking to carve out the division, uh, the technology division of the business. And we got engaged, saw a lot of upside, fair amount of risk as well, to be clear. And we dove right in. And, you know, we met the company, I think, in mid-September and we closed in early November. So it was a pretty quick process. And that was our first transaction. And that's when Penny and I got together to formalize Clunder River Partners and go from there. From my perspective, coming from a VC angle, VCs are not at all about talking to middle market sort of banks and going through that route. It's all about the hustling and the meeting of entrepreneurs and the meeting of management. And so as we close on SageTag, Nathan and I talked a lot about, hey, what does a sourcing strategy look like for CRP? And one thing that we've done is we've brought a little bit of kind of the Silicon Valley know-how and how startups reach out and do business development, how VCs reach out and do business development into the private equity world. And I think that has differentiated us a bit. We try to avoid the usual auction processes through banks. The markets become super competitive. Multiples are up a significant pace that, you know, is sort of hard to believe at times. And so, you know, we're trying to go more direct. We are looking at carve-outs as a particular strategy. And so that's, you know, just been a little bit of how we wanted to differentiate ourselves against some of the other kind of lower middle market firms that are out there. Talk a little bit about Sage Tech. We've, we've had a lot of conversation about that deal, and I'm still really intrigued, impressed, and fascinated with how you executed on that deal. From what we've discussed, that may be one that others might have avoided or maybe not even avoided, but just not been able to wrap their heads around the deal or not been able to execute. But you guys really saw the value of the platform. You figured it out in what I thought was an intriguing way. And that platform's turned out to be incredibly successful. There's already a terrific amount of growth. And in a short period of time. would love to hear some more about that deal and how you approached it and some of the unique perspectives that the two of you took to get it done. Yeah, no, happy to jump in. I think what was interesting about that deal was there was a, an advisor in place who I think had shown the deal to a number of folks, but I don't think he had positioned it in the best light. What got us intrigued about the business is what really got us excited was we were able to do customer calls fairly early in the process. And these guys have some marquee customers, including some of the big aerospace companies like Boeing, Textron, Arcturus. And the feedback that we got is Safestack is really one of the only players in their space that provides a technology solution that allows unmanned aircraft to fly more safely. And that's sort of what got us intrigued that, hey, how are these guys able to develop this number one position or number two position in the marketplace? And I think they've been building the solution for a number of years, and they were able to capture sort of a very high percent of market share in the military market. And then our belief was, as well as the management team's belief was, that, hey, unmanned aircraft such as drones and air taxis and urban air mobility, it's going to continue to evolve but it's going to be relevant. And we're seeing that today in the public markets. We realize that there's a huge opportunity in front of us. It comes with huge risk, don't get me wrong. And so we were willing to invest behind this management team, carve out this division, invest in the resources. 
And I think one thing I'll let Panit explain is, in addition to just taking the asset out, setting up a new company, setting up all new processes, Panit did a fair amount of work on the technology development front to kind of help accelerate the future roadmap and development of the business. This is probably not a typical call it buy and build strategy of a traditional business. You know, there's a fair amount of risk here that we took, and we're hopeful that we see the benefit of it in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think, you know, when we first looked at this, it was pretty evident that there was actually some real IP here, right? And, and it's not often that you come across a company that's where the larger entities in distress, but you've got this sort of really small gem with, in my mind, was a pretty strong management team that was really interested in working to carve out that division and were really open to new ideas, how do you grow this thing, leveraging new technology. So we spent a fair bit of time with the management team pre-transaction, sort of getting to know them, understanding where they wanted to take the business, understanding how open they were to new ideas. And we spent a lot of time even pre-closing, strategizing with them, looking at their tech stack, looking at their processes and how they do development, and really kind of reworked their org kind of tech stack, as well as their development processes, their sales processes, their marketing tech stack, and brought really what you know I consider sort of the best of Silicon Valley to them to be able to be more lean and efficient, both from a cost structure perspective, as well as a just operational efficiency perspective. And, and I think it made a huge difference kind of day one and whether by luck or by skill, you know, when COVID hit and we had to, you know, move to a remote sort of work mentality for at least a lot of the engineers, not our production staff per se, but moving into the cloud, doing a lot of the process changes and cultural changes that we had made really enabled the team to stay as productive as they were in person. You know, really, really fascinating about the conversations with the management team. Greg and I talk about all the time about the advice we give to our independent sponsor clients and the conversations we have with our independent sponsor clients about the importance of that early connection and early relationship with the management team. Sometimes we all forget about how valuable that is because deals are moving fast and we're eager, our clients are eager to get the deal locked up. That conversation, that connection with the management team, as you guys well know, is so critical. What were those conversations like? It sounds like you were bringing some perspective that maybe the team hadn't thought about and that was attractive to them. Yeah, so like, you know, just like one example I can tell you, right? Their whole technology development process, the company about, was about 20 years old, you know, the old co. And their development processes, a, a lot of the systems they were using, a lot of the tools they were using looked like stuff that I used coming out of undergrad. And it was a system that the current team basically inherited as they came into the company. And so just talking to them a lot about, hey, these are the systems and processes that modern technology teams are using in Silicon Valley. So moving from six-month development cycles to a more agile software development process where they would have weekly meetings previously and engineers would go off for a couple months and develop and come back and stuff always wouldn't integrate well, and you'd have a lot of bugs that would come out of that. Moving to a process where we were doing daily stand-ups, where people would talk about the issues that they're having or what they're planning on working on, to doing two-week sprints where people are actively integrating as they're doing development without having to increase investment in the engineering team, which we did simultaneously, but they became much more efficient from a software development process. And so walking them through what that process looked like, even pre-transaction, bringing in experts that we know of, like we have a technology team that we work with quite closely, having them present to the team and actually talking through, hey, this is what an agile development process looks like. 
I think was super interesting for them to see the types of resources that we could bring to bear. I've got a question for you. This is really interesting. This is obviously a deal that required a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get it from point A to point B, where you're moving now. How did the capital provider market respond when you bring them not so much what I would call a boring deal? And, you know, some investors love boring companies, and they'll, they'll tell you that even. They, you know, what's the EBITDA? What's the track record? And they love boring companies. This is not one of those, it sounds like. Are there certain investors that are immediately turned off? And just if you want to describe what that process was like in, in approaching different capital providers. So to make it even more complex, this was through a receivership sort of bankruptcy process. And we were fortunate enough to get what they call the stalking horse position. So we were the lead horse. And we then had to show the court system that we had the capital to do the deal, but they still had time to go solicit other bids. So that made the process even more tricky. What ended up happening is we went to our investor network, and you know, it wasn't easy. We probably talked to, we did not talk to, call it a traditional independent sponsor capital provider, funds that are committed to the independent sponsor community. You know, they're looking for typically, you know, certain extra amount of EBITDA, leverage, et cetera. We didn't go through that path. We basically, you know, P&L leverage our, our network, including his family office, which they were an anchor investor, as well as a number of our high net worth individuals. And we were very clear, like, here's the deal, here's the capital that we're trying to raise, you know, just about just under $10 million of capital. There is some risk here, right? Even when, as soon as we got the amount circled, that we got sort of the full amount that we needed, you know, we made it very clear to every investor that, hey, there's still a chance that we may not even close this transaction because if the court system does receive another offer that's better or perceived better, they will not take our offer. But we had to show evidence that we had the capital. So we didn't go to what I call the traditional independent sponsor backers. We went to our network of investors. I'd say out of the 100, we had about 25 investors get excited about the deal. I would tell you, anybody that we got on the phone to discuss the opportunity ended up participating. It's just a matter of honestly timing in terms of when we can get an investor to listen to us about the opportunity. Well, yeah, wow. and in the end, we ended up being significantly oversubscribed and we actually leveraged the opportunity to actually overcapitalize the company. And I think maybe there's an important lesson there, which is the importance of going out to the investment community, particularly in a deal like this or really in any deal, and being candid and frank about risk versus opportunity, upside, downside, where all the skeletons are. In other words, the good and the bad. Sounds like a real Silicon Valley type approach when you're talking to VCs and you employed some of that here. Thoughts about that? So it's interesting. The, the company had a legacy platform that they were selling, generated revenues, generated EBITDA, cash flow. But the upside was all based on reinvesting all that profit as well as the new capital into the new platform, which we think will have significant market adoption. The downside that we presented to every investor was, hey, if for some reason the market moves away, you know, we're not first to market or the market doesn't adopt our product or, for what it, or the rules change, or whatever the scenarios are, we were able to show all the investors in a downside that if we just continue to sell the existing platform, we could cut the overhead pretty quickly to make it very lean, and we could generate enough cash to return everyone's capital. So from a downside, like in my mind, in the venture world, the downside, it goes to zero. The downside in this case would have been, hey, you, every investor would get their capital back. P&I wouldn't make any money, but at least we'd get everyone's capital back and we'd fight to live another day. I'm sure that, yeah, I'm and sure then, that resonated. And it's frankly... It's important for us, you know, for our reputation to be very clear about downside risk for any investment. So, you know, for every memo that we've ever circulated, we are super clear about here are the downside risks that we see 
And if there's ways that we can mitigate it, great. But we want to be super upfront about that. We're not going to sugarcoat an investment just for the sake of getting a deal done. Long-term thinking that certainly paid off on this one and will, I imagine, pay off down the road. I want to turn a little bit to Columbia River, you guys, the two of you. You both went to Kellogg, correct? Is that where you connected? We actually met each other prior to school even starting. So uh, we've known each other now. It's been uh, almost 18 years. <laughs> How time flies, right? Do you have different skill sets? Do you... Do you, how do you team up on deals and use your different approaches, skill sets? Curious about that. I come from the traditional PE background. Pete's sort of the traditional VC background. Our focus at CRP is to find situations where, you know, sort of off the beaten path, but where there's an angle where we can apply technology to the business. We're not chasing sort of the growth equity. We're not chasing the, the high multiple sounds businesses. Now, we're actually looking at a business right now that is in, you know, for lack of a better word, it's in the contractor infrastructure play. Today, it's a contractor business. And initially, we walked away from it. We spent some more time with the owners, and we made them a pitch that, hey, we think there's a fair amount of technology we could apply to your business, both at the core and at the periphery. At the periphery, it's like, you know, helping automate, you know, sales process, sort of the simple stuff, or, you know, not simple, but traditional stuff. And at the core is, can we offer technology solutions to augment the current services you provide today to your clients? I spend more time on the sourcing, capital structure, finding opportunities, and Panit spends more time on the operations and how do we apply technology to these businesses. Ironically, over the past year, we sort of morphed and we're both doing both tasks or both sides of the house, but we each have our strengths in terms of the sourcing and the capital structure versus the technology and operations. So from my perspective, you know, in addition to the VC side, I've been an operator now three times, right? I've started two different software businesses. I started a renewable energy business. So one of the things that we're able to do is really kind of help operators look at different aspects of their business from, from an actual ongoing perspective and bring tools to bear that are actually helpful to them. And the interesting thing that we've seen is that Outside of Silicon Valley, I can keep referring back to it, but, but not everybody has that same exposure to all these great tools that all these startups are working on. And so being able to leverage that experience has been quite interesting for companies that we're working with. You mentioned some of the themes that you look at in, in the target companies. That's super helpful. So how do you think about when you're approaching a target company, presenting yourselves, presenting yourselves both your strengths and, and talking about those strengths. I know you mentioned the, the Silicon Valley background and the tools. How do you have the discussions about that you're an independent sponsor investor and the pros and cons of that model? Great question. I think it depends on the audience and how robust the process is and how attractive the company is to some degree. If a company's got a lot of options in terms of, hey, they're five of EBITDA, great gross margins, good team, probably getting called by a number of investment bankers that want to take them to market and go talk to committed funds. So those are plays that we try to avoid, unless it's in a sector that we really, really know. One situation just recently, a family office received an opportunity in the counter drone space. And they've asked us to help them analyze that business and we may partner with them on that opportunity. Still early stages. We think about a company that we work with, they tend to be on the smaller side. We try to focus on areas that we know or where we think there's a technology play. And more interestingly, like this infrastructure, physical infrastructure I was talking about, we actually initially walked away from the business because we thought there wasn't much we could do with the business, nice business. And then they actually called us back and said, hey, you guys, the thoughts on technology were pretty interesting. We'd love to have a further discussion about it. So we try to lead with the technology discussion. Not everybody wants to hear about every latest tool from Silicon Valley, but we try to temper that with, here are some interesting ideas in terms of how we can help 
accelerate your business or adds a little bit of transformation that allows your business to be more sticky, more current revenue basis. That seems to go well with a lot of these small business owners because they just haven't had someone with that mindset, you know, discuss it with them. The other thing that we also look at and talk to business owners about is what they're seeing in their industry from a technology trend perspective. So one of the things that we'd love to see is, hey, is there a tech disruption happening in a potential targets industry, right? And so is there an upstart bringing technology? Is there a way to apply technology into their space that they may not have the skill set internally to actually execute on, but are actually looking for help? And having a technology team that we work with, having access to other folks, you know, around the country and frankly, globally, um, to be able to help business owners strategize about how to best kind of bring technology to bear does actually differentiate us from a lot of other folks who may be purely financial sponsors. We are actually unlikely to be the type of sponsor, I think, you know, where we invest in a business and we meet the management team sort of once or twice a year to see how the business is growing. I don't think that's really how we're going to be adding value. That typically comes out pretty fast up front as we have those discussions with management. What is your typical involvement like? Board meetings, obviously, but but what's your interaction like with the, with the target company after the closing? On Sage Tech, we were pretty heavily involved the first six weeks because that was ultimately a carve out where we had to set up new finance, new HR new technology out of the gate, and we're pretty involved the first six to eight weeks. Ultimately, we want to get to a point where there's a team that we've backed that can run the business, and then we can be strategic, help them on a strategic. We're not in the business to be day-to-day operators, so I think we're not enough that we could step in that way if we needed to, but that's not our goal. We do have quarterly board meetings. Panit does participate in a company sort of 10-minute daily stand-ups every day, which is 10 minutes of our time. And that's just a good practice for us to understand what's going on. As we add more companies, we can't do that. We can't be that. We can't do that with every company. One thing that we spend a lot of time on is people, we're big fans of executive coaches for management. And that's something that we think is a, is a good test if people are willing to listen to us for help. Those are some of the tools that we use, that we've used when evaluating opportunities. And I think, you know, aside from sort of the quarterly management meetings, we are really, frankly, there to be resources for the management team. And so we're helping one of our companies with an investor deck and a sales deck. And because I've got a fair bit of experience doing enterprise sales, I'll give advice on, hey, this is how I think a deck, for example, might look like. And so we're really there to be resources. We're not there to be operators. And I think management, as far as we can tell, I think they appreciate the fact that we're there as a resource, but we're not there to sort of be there on a day-to-day basis. So it seems to work. When talking with our capital provider clients, everyone is always excited to work with independent sponsors that, that add value. And it sounds like that's just central to your playbook when you talk about all the different tools that you bring and the, the resources you provide. That's great. You guys have covered a tremendous amount of ground already. Tell us what's next for CRP. Any sectors you like in particular? Any particular strategies, new thoughts, strategies you want to share? You've you've talked about some of the deals you're looking at. Curious as to big picture where you're going from here. I think ultimately we'd like to get to three to five platforms and then dive super deep into these companies. One of the things when I was at my traditional PE firm, we, we tend to be generalists. And I think the market is shifting. And you can see it with even the small investment bankers and advisors, they're becoming pretty specialized. And I think that's going to, and you're seeing to see PE firms that are funded become specialized. And I think ultimately you'll see. You're going to see an independent sponsor say, hey, I'm looking for specific targets. I know a number of independent sponsors focused on the HVAC space as an example. So 
So I think our goal is to pick three to five. We've got one sort of in the in the drone space, which really applies, which has a number of different angles from interesting technologies for the defense market. It's got some applications to the commercial market. It's got a manufacturing component because we make our own product. We're sort of exploring how do we get deeper and get deeper in these subsectors and find more opportunities. It's great. You know, we had a family office call us to help them get smart about an opportunity that they saw in the counter drone space. So our goal is to pick three to five, get to get to three to five and dive deep. We want to be those guys where for certain really specific subsectors, hopefully they call us. It's hard for our input. Yeah, well, that's got to feel good to get the call from the family office seeking your advice. It means you're you're doing some things the right way. So that that's terrific. That's great. That's great. Well, hey, Nathan, Puneet, Richard, thanks very much for your time. This was really informative. Again, thank you. Guys, thanks for having thank us. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, if we can be helpful, we'd, you know, we'd love to help other independent sponsors. We've got a great community up in Seattle where I'm based. There's about 10 of us and very collaborative, very helpful. So we want to continue to build that that environment and ecosystem across the, the market with you guys. Well, we appreciate that. We appreciate that. And that's a dynamic market. And we'll be taking you up on that. And again, to echo what Greg said, the pleasure is ours. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Greg. Okay. For our next interview, we're lucky to have with us Brad Harrop at Capstone Headwaters, and we're also joined by my partner in our San Francisco office, Brian Coughlin. We're going to be talking about the debt finance markets and the work that Capstone Headwaters does in those markets. But first, Brian, do you want to give a quick introduction to yourself and your practice? Sure. Thanks, Greg. As you mentioned, I'm a partner in the McGuire Woods San Francisco office. I'm in the private equity and corporate group, although my practice is focused exclusively or primarily on debt finance, and I primarily represent borrowers and private equity funds in connection with financing transactions, which is a really fun space the market to be in right now. Lots of activity, lots of acquisitions, and lots of credit facilities. So that is what my day looks like pretty much every day at this point. Great. Thanks. And and Brian and I work together side by side on a lot of deals. We'll all be negotiating the M&A documents and the upstream equity documents. And, and Brian will be working on the credit agreement and all the work streams that relate to that. So it's great. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Brad, do you want to give a quick introduction to yourself and the Capstone Headwaters? Yeah, Capstone Headwaters as a you know, traditional middle market sell-side investment bank. We've got about 170 professionals across the firm, that's across the country as well. We're headquartered in Boston and have a, another large office in Denver, Colorado, where I sit. And I'm part of the firm's debt advisory group. So probably two-thirds of our firm's revenue is more on traditional M&A advisory, helping entrepreneurs and private equity firms sell their businesses. My group within the debt advisory group is exclusively focused on, on raising capital, primarily debt. We'll do some equity as part of a larger debt transaction, but very much credit focused. We are a six-member team with most of us in Denver, and we've got a managing director out in Los Angeles as well. And we are typically doing transactions, check sizes probably in the $15 million range on the low end, up to really anything that doesn't touch the broadly syndicated market. So we typically look at that with businesses doing EBITDA of 40 million and below, sometimes negative, but typically that's our parameters on an EBITDA front, you know, probably 15 million to 250 million is a check size range with their sweet spot in the 50 to 100 million range. Great. Yeah. So so you sit firmly in the in the middle market to lower middle market, which is right where McGuire Woods typically plays and also a lot of our clients, including our independent sponsor clients. So to kick us off at a 10,000-foot level, what are you seeing in the middle market to lower middle market as far as your clients being able to raise debt capital, the terms, et cetera, and trends? We've actually seen, obviously, 2020 was an interesting year. When COVID initially hit, most lenders that we work with really turned internally 
and just made sure that their existing portfolios really were healthy at all those businesses and borrowers had sufficient liquidity really to weather that storm. So we certainly saw a pause probably from March to May, June, at least on the new origination side of things. But then as, as the markets really recovered, we saw things open up pretty dramatically towards the back end of the year. Certainly, there's still a bifurcation in the market. If you are a business that has been directly impacted by COVID or even indirectly impacted with in markets of focus or whatever it may be, where COVID has impacted those, financing those businesses is a little bit more challenging. But I think we're still seeing some of those able to get done, maybe a little higher pricing or a little bit less leverage than they would have been able to attract previously. But I think some of those businesses, if they're insulated enough, can still get transactions done but certainly more challenged and, and more nuanced and certainly something where you know proper positioning is paramount for those types of businesses. And I think for those that were not as directly impacted or even grew through COVID, just given the amount of money that's been raised in the alternative lender space, there's a lot of money that they've got to deploy. And so chasing and, and, and really pursuing those quality businesses that, that have done well during COVID, we've seen that market really return almost to pre-COVID levels as far as an ability to attract financing with respect to those types of businesses. Yeah, Brad, that's what we're seeing as well. I think the bifurcation in the market between, you know, in some sense, the COVID haves and have-nots has really been dramatic. And I do agree with you that with the amount of money that's basically sloshing around in the market, it does seem like the terms are, in some senses, almost unbelievable. And, you know, we see it, I think, both on the private equity side and on the debt financing side with increasing multiples, more favorable terms that we than we really would have expected to have seen, especially given what the country has gone through in the last year. I think if we were sitting here in April 2020 trying to predict debt terms in March or April 2021, I don't think anybody would anybody would be predicting what we're seeing right now. You did mention that you started to see a lot of money flowing into private debt funds, and we've certainly seen that as well. With the private debt funds starting to move into the lower middle market, particularly the lower middle market sponsor space, what are you seeing the bank lenders doing? Are you still seeing bank lenders competing directly for those deals, or are they really retreating from that market, looking for different types of opportunities and really seeding that space to the non-bank direct lender market? I think the answer to that question, uh, as usual, right, is it depends. But I think a general answer is the banks are still active in the market. I just think they're unable to be as aggressive as a lot of these alternative lenders are, at least from a leverage standpoint on cash flow deals. I think a lot of banks are less less aggressive from a total leverage standpoint and are more asset-oriented in the way that they underwrite. So doing less cash flow deals and more asset-based loans, which just given the aggression that we have seen with some of the direct lenders on a cash flow front, we've seen a lot of those borrowers be able to get more money from the alternative lenders. So I don't know that it's necessarily that the banks are less active. It's just the way that they underwrite may not yield the best result in certain scenarios. I think it's also based on the size of the deal, very much dependent on that. Larger deals where you're looking for maximum leverage is typically we're seeing those be more unitronch type executions with a single lender on the direct lending side. And I think the bank lenders just won't go, won't be as aggressive from a total leverage standpoint. So if you're looking to maximize leverage, then you've got to bring in a subordinated debt lender or second lien provider. That just adds a little bit of complexity to the capital structure and a little bit of complexity to the execution. So we've just seen that, you know, most of the deals that we have done really over the last several years have trended more towards that cash flow based financing from these direct lenders in the marketplace. And that's just been that's just been the simplest execution. And I think the pricing from a bank is always going to be the lowest. But again, when you're having to combine that to achieve maximum leverage and bringing in a higher price piece of debt behind them, I think your blended cost ultimately ends up largely in the same spot. And I think the traditional banks are a little bit more conservative with the way they underwrite and some of the terms that you would see in those credit agreements and some of the uh, direct lenders just have a little bit more flexibility, just given that they're not regulated entities. And so we've had success on most of our executions with those alternative cash flow type lenders. I would definitely say that the ability of direct lenders to go higher on leverage, especially with multiples creeping up pretty high, it's something that's in their favor. And 
you do occasionally see bank lenders that are willing to be a little get a little bit more aggressive with leverage, but they are constrained from a regulatory perspective, and that's just it's hard for them to push beyond a certain level. Specifically with direct lenders, are you seeing actually how are you seeing industry specific verticals or specialty arms impact the market? And I would say the one industry specific vertical that we've seen a lot over the last few years has been healthcare lenders, kind of the dedicated healthcare lenders. They just want to do loans back to government healthcare receivables, or they want to do loans to businesses in the healthcare space. Those are very prevalent. And I, from our perspective, very successful. We haven't really seen a huge growth in other industries, although there certainly are energy-specific arms. Are you seeing more industry-specific verticals or things like that in the direct lender space? And if so, how is that impacting the types of deals that you're able to get through with those lenders? It's interesting that you note healthcare specifically, because we have seen that. If there's, if there's any industry that does have specialty focus, it probably is healthcare. That's just, there's enough complexities with reimbursement risk and, and some other characteristics of that industry that there have been some groups that have created dedicated practices or even specific lenders that maybe only focus on healthcare type transactions. I think generally in the market, most lenders are largely industry agnostic. And I think that still remains the case today, for the most part with most of the groups that we interact with on a regular basis. You mentioned healthcare. There's probably specialty lenders that would focus on certain other areas. I would highlight potentially real estate. Our group doesn't do a ton of real estate, but there are lenders that focus on real estate. That's a little bit different of an underwrite. There are some technology-focused or, or what we would call venture lenders that have a different underwriting methodology for, for higher growth, earlier stage type businesses with recurring revenue models. And then probably project finance is another area that, that I would highlight for more sort of development of, of new facilities, sort of a construction type loan as well that I would highlight. Otherwise, I think for the most part, most of the lenders that we deal with are industry agnostic and have remained that way. Some of the larger asset managers may have created a healthcare group, for example, as you pointed out. But most of the groups that we still deal with are, are relatively industry agnostic and, and play across a variety of different industries. We're not seeing a ton of specialization, at least on the lending side. You know, one thing that we are seeing on direct lenders is that as there starts to be more money in the market, the terms, the better terms start to creep lower and lower in the market. And so the terms that we might have expected at maybe slightly lower leverage or slightly higher EBITDA are now starting to show up where there's slightly higher leverage or there's slightly lower EBITDA. Are there any pockets of the market where you've seen that change or those those more borrower or sponsor favorable terms not show up in deals? Or are there any holdout lenders, I guess, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I, I think we see this is generally a question of size, I, I would say. that To your point, a lot of the terms that you're highlighting there that have begun to creep down are obviously creeping down from larger deals. So where that bifurcation in the market exists as to where exactly we stop seeing those types of terms you know, creeping down to the lower middle market, I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer for that. But I would say to your question of where are we seeing those really not manifesting themselves so far is, is probably the smaller type deals. I think if you're sub $5 million of EBITDA, certainly, potentially even up to, to 7.5, just the lender universe that focuses on transactions at that size level is a little bit smaller. So I think the competitive environment is just a little bit different. We have seen, though, some of the larger lenders that would historically have focused on maybe $10 million of EBITDA and up or even higher than that have come down market a little bit. I think that's probably a product of the fundraising that we, that we mentioned earlier to where there's just a lot of money out there. And I think in order to get it to get that money deployed, some lenders are coming down market just a little bit as far as size goes. So I think those lenders that are used to underwriting larger deals and have that mindset on those sorts of terms, at least are, are showing some flexibility there to just expand the, the universe of companies that they can pursue. But those that have historically been focused on the true lower end of the middle market, seven and a half million, like I said, of EBITDA and below, we're still seeing those types of deals largely insulated from some of those terms that have come down from the, the higher end of the market. Kind of piggybacking off of that, because we do frequently see as we're in the lower end of the market that those deals are done not only as a debt deal, but usually a debt deal with a significant equity co-invest. 
How does that, when you're marketing a deal for a borrower, how does the, the possibility of an equity co-invest go into your marketing strategy? Is that something, I mean, obviously it's going to be deal specific and whether or not there is room for an equity co-invest in the facility, but is that something that is always in the back of your mind as an option? Or are you trying to preserve that as kind of a last minute give if you need to get a difficult investor across the finish line in a unique transaction? And it's probably more the latter. Uh, you know, we are typically most borrowers are looking to to minimize any equity dilution, and so are looking to raise most of the capital there that they're looking for at that time as structured as debt as opposed to equity. I think also most of the lenders that we deal with, certainly at the at the higher end of the market, are, are certainly more credit focused. Some of them have the ability to write equity checks. Some of them like to do it more than others. Some, it's more a one-off type of situation where maybe leverage is, is tapped out at a certain level and we've just got a small hole that a lender could provide that equity co-invest. I think typically, at least at the higher end of the market, they definitely want to be more weighted towards credit. So I'd say maybe it's a four to one debt to equity split, if not even higher on the debt portion of that. And I think as you get down into the lower middle market where certain lenders have a more flexible mandate, many times anyway, that they are, and I think perceived risk may be higher as well, where they may be more prone to writing an equity check and buying some equity to juice their returns that way or structuring their debt with some sort of warrant kicker or some other structured piece of equity just to to give them a little more upside in those smaller types of deals. So if you're advising a borrower as they start to go to market, what are the sorts of maybe two or three really key things that you want to make sure that you impress on them so that they can turn around and really impress a lender and I guess make it more likely that they can get that financing? Or are there certain, obviously your financials are what they are, but are there certain operational items or certain diligence items or process items that make a potential borrower much more attractive to a direct lender than if those things are missing? You mentioned the financial side of things. I think in almost all of our processes now, we're seeing equality of earnings being done, whether that business has historically been audited or not. I just think that's becoming very commonplace in the industry. So we are recommending to our clients to begin a quality of earnings process, essentially upon engagement with us. It's good to get that done out of, at the beginning. Identify any potential concerns there. You don't want to get too far down the pathway on a process and then have something come up from a financial standpoint that is uh, impactful to the deal in a negative way. And then I'd say also, you know, from more from a business model standpoint, probably the more diversified the business can be, we've had success marketing businesses that, that have some customer concentration or some in market diversification. On the concentration side, we've struggled where some businesses are concentrated with certain customers or in certain end markets. That makes things challenging. A lot of businesses we've worked with that have done a really good job diversifying their businesses, so just less exposure to certain aspects of really of the larger macro economy. If you've got more diversification on an in-market front or with customers, your, your business is just considered more resilient. And I think that's one thing to focus on, at least when we're marketing and running a lot of our processes. You specifically mentioned a quality of earnings, and I just want to touch very briefly on that because one thing that we see frequently, especially in the lower middle market on the acquisition side, is that the financials are not GAAP compliant. And so the idea of an accounting transition period is something that, that we, we frequently see in deals just because whoever the acquirer does have to spend some time getting the financials into a place where they're GAAP or at least closer to GAAP. Do you see that as a barrier to financing a transaction, or is that something that you find most lenders are actually pretty comfortable with at this point? It can be, and I think it all just sort of depends on the order of magnitude of some of the fluctuations that could result from conversion to from cash basis to more accrual basis, and I guess more towards towards gap financials. We're seeing, you know, if there's a quality of earnings that's been performed typically with a proof of cash where we can at least show that the the financials that we're showing here don't have material errors. It's largely maybe just more of a classification issue within the income statement for certain items, or maybe there's some minor cutoff issues towards the end of certain periods, but it's not one where the financials have really errors or something more concerning along those lines. In that scenario, that has not really been too much of a barrier. Now, 
obviously we've got, you know, every lender has to get comfortable with the financials and equality of earnings is one way to do that. But I think we have not seen audits be absolutely required if they can get comfortable in another way. Now, I think post-closing, a lot of the time they want to move more towards some sort of CPA verified financials and definitely get those into more of a gap format. But I think to your point, that's not necessarily going to preclude them from closing the deal, at least on the timeline that, that's being pursued as part of that transaction. That can be a cleanup item post-closing if certain lenders are able to get comfortable with the financials as presented. Well, Brad, thank you very much for your time. It was great to have you on and great to hear your perspective on what you're seeing in the debt financing industry, particularly kind of in the lower middle market. Greg, I will turn it back to you. If there's any closing closing advice on your side, but otherwise, Brad, thank sure. you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Brad, and thanks, Brian. This was very informative. Brad, we'll be sure to include your contact information on the show notes so our listeners can feel free to reach out to you and your team at Capstone Headwaters. Thanks again for your time. That would be great, guys. Really appreciate the time. Looking forward to to round two. That wraps up episode two. Thanks to our guests from Columbia River Partners and Capstone Headwaters, and also to Richard Grant and Brian Coughlin for taking the time. Please feel free to reach out with any questions to any of the guests or hosts from today's episode. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.